is that Jesus is the king. And the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is, is he your king? Have you allowed him to become the king in your life? And so take your Bibles and let's turn to that text, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 1 through 18 this morning. And hopefully uh, it will encourage you in your walk and encourage you in your Christmas celebration uh, to know why it's so exciting to be a follower of Christ. You know, as I was thinking about uh, Jesus being a king, I was watching the news and watching all that goes on in our, our world. We desperately need a good ruler, don't we? As I was watching our presidential debates, three words kept coming to my mind, God help us. As I watch the leaders of the world gather to tackle economic issues and issues like global warming and all sorts of things that they're concerned about, I just continue to say, God help us. As I look across the span of human history and you look at the rise and the fall of empires and kings and kingdoms and rulers, those three words keep coming back, God help us. And the message of Scripture, the message of Christmas is that God has helped us. He has. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9 above. And I want us to read a promise. I want us to read a promise that is absolutely life-changing and, and critical. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And if we could, let's read this out loud together. If you can see that up there. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and when? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do this. That is a promise. And when God makes promises, he's capable and committed to his own integrity he is capable and committed to fulfill his promises. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, a publican, and he was uh, saved by Jesus. And many of you know that story out of Matthew 9 where he came upon Matthew and Matthew had him over to his house and threw a big feast. And Matthew became one of his disciples disciples and Matthew was skilled and he was able to keep great records and all those things well he produced for us the first gospel and he is a great bridge from that 400 years of silence that the video talked about where people didn't hear from God and and all of the Israelites and all the people were saying God help us well Matthew comes on the scene after Jesus has ascended to the father and he writes this gospel and he has two messages. He says, Israelites, Jewish folks, this Jesus, 
that you put on a cross was your Messiah, and I'm going to prove it to you. And then he says something excellent that you ought to be excited about. He comes and he says, oh, and by the way, he's not just Messiah for the Jews. He's Messiah for everybody. He is for the whole world. In fact, it is Matthew that ends his gospel with the great commission, go into all the world, all the world, the uttermost sense of the world, teaching the gospel, baptizing and uh, making disciples of Jesus. And so Matthew is a great bridge. And he begins this gospel with an astounding verse. Because the first verse of Matthew is founded upon two critical promises. One of them we just read has to do with a person by the name of David, right? He said, you're going to sit on a throne, and that throne is going to be Forever. So I'm going to do a little diagramming for you, and I know you get excited when I do this because my drawing and handwriting is so wonderful, but that is going to be the best I can do with a throne, okay? So there's going to be an eternal government, an eternal throne. There's going to be a king who sits on that throne forever and ever. We just read that, Isaiah chapter 9. This is where we're going. This is the great hope. You know our earthly kings can't do it. We need a divine king that has something that no earthly king can possess. And God has promised it. And he said, it's going to come through the people of Israel. And he said, he said I'm going to promise something to a man by the name of King David. He said, David, I'm going to promise that this eternal throne comes out of your lineage. He's going to come out of your family. And so he says, you're going to have a never-ending throne with one of David's uh, uh, ancestors or one of David's future uh, people on that throne. And in 2 Samuel, listen to it. It says this. The prophet is talking to David, and he said, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which means you're dead, I will raise you up. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So so what? He had Solomon, he had Nathan, he had a bunch of sons, right? But there's something different about this seed. He shall build a house for my name, a temple, and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? So there's a promise one. There's going to be a never-ending throne. Now, there's another great Old Testament promise. And this Old Testament promise was given to Abraham. Look at the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to make to you, make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, again, you could just stop there and say, all right, he's going to have a nation. We've got lots of nations. But he says this, <coughs> in you, out of your seed, out of this nation, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, not only is there going to be a never-ending throne, there is going to be a universal blessing, a universal blessing, and it has to come through the seed of who? Abraham. So all of a sudden, 
we've got two, two people here. God makes a promise. There's going to be an eternal government. There's going to be an eternal, never-ending throne that's going to be a blessing to the entire universe, all the people of the earth, and two critical stipulations. Whoever sits on that throne has to come through the seed of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, and out of David. Here's what Matthew is going to do. And over the next few Sundays, we're going to see him build a case. He goes from tax gatherer to lawyer. He's going to build a case to show you that this throne can only be occupied by one person. One person has the right to sit on that throne. And his name is what, church? Y'all are quick studies. Jesus, the perfect Sunday school answer, Jesus. So how is he going to show us this? Well, look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. He makes an astounding claim. Look what he says. The book, these are the first words of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How many of you have done any genealogy work? Raise your hand. I I thought it would be more of, how many of you have ever gone on Ancestry.com or even gotten your... I'm curious, really curious about this stuff. I love to look back through my family history and, uh, and find out things. And, and so this is the family history of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the christened one, Jesus Christ. And look what he says. The son of who? He kind of works backwards. The son of David and the son of who? Abraham. An astounding claim. He breaks the silence of the Old Testament with, with, a, with this statement. I have the man who fulfills the Christmas promise. He comes from Abraham. He comes from David. And then he gives us a genealogy to build a case for Jesus. This genealogy is just fascinating. And it's fascinating that it comes from Matthew. Matthew, as I mentioned, was a, a publican. He was a, a traitor to his own people. He was, um, he was after money. The way that worked is that he would have, uh, people were allowed to make bids with the Roman Empire to take up the taxes in particular regions. And if you won the bid, and say you got the bid for Gainesville and I became your public ante, what that meant is that I would come out and I would make sure you all, that I would tell Rome I'd collect all your taxes. And it would be in a, in a way that I would collect that and Rome pays me interest on taxes and if I can get more out of you than I owe Rome, I get to keep the extra. So I would be one of your people that comes, I sell you out to the government, to the Roman Empire. I squeeze you for all that you're worth. I get interest on your taxes, and I take more than you really owe. Now, you think you don't like the IRS. You really would not like Matthew. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Jesus walked up to that table? Matthew, who for years looked into the eyes of his Jewish brethren and saw contempt and hatred. And for the first time, I bet for the first time, he looked into the eyes of one of his countrymen and he saw compassion. And he saw love and it broke through. 
he was born again. He became a follower of Christ. You see, he was in kind of a spiritual no man's land. He wasn't really any longer considered a good Israelite or Jewish. He wasn't a Rome. Rome hated him. His own people hated him. He was just in his own no man's land of greed. And Jesus broke him down. He said, all right, you're going to be perfect. You're going to be perfect. I'm going to turn you into a lawyer because you can take great notes. (laughs) You're really skilled at this. And you can take the Old Testament because you're Jewish and you know this and you can go back and you can scour the Old Testament. And Matthew has more Old Testament quotations than the other Gospels. And he just scours the Old Testament. And I want you to show these people in Gainesville that I am the promised king. And then you're, gonna, you're the perfect person to turn and talk to the Romans, the Gentiles, and the others and say, hey, the, the Messiah came to Jews and they rejected him and Part of God's plan is through that rejection, it is now offered to all of you. And so he builds this case. And he's going to build it in three ways. And, and I want to show you these three things before we're, we're done today. He's going to look at the pedigree of Jesus. And he's going to show us how the pedigree uh, makes him king. And then we're going to see that one of the reasons we ought to yield ourselves to king is because of the people that are in his genealogy, the people that he can use. And then we're going to see that of all the kings that have ever lived, only Jesus can make us a proposal that makes a difference. He gives us a proposal that only the king of the universe could make. So let's begin by looking at his pedigree, his genealogy. And there's some fascinating things Who your daddy was was incredibly important in those days. This is important in our day, but back then it was the only way you could determine claims on land, tribal allocations, inheritance. It established the basis of taxation. You remember when uh, Mary and Joseph went to pay their taxes? They went to the city of Bethlehem, which was the city of who? David. And so the tax records, the genealogies, uh, sent Joseph back to his hometown and Mary back to uh, the place of her, uh, of her roots. And so who your genealogy was is absolutely critically important. By the way, those genealogies are no longer in existence. They've been destroyed. And if someone came up today and said, hey, I'm the Messiah and I have legal, physical claim to the throne of Israel, they could not make that claim. There's no proof. There's no way to prove it. It's not possible even today. But look what, look what we see when we look through these 17 verses of genealogy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out the, the pertinent points or we'll be here for three hours. Say amen if you don't want to be here three hours. Say amen. All right, you're with me. Here's what we discover. There's two genealogies in the Gospels. There's a genealogy for Mary and there's a genealogy for Joseph. And so we have a genealogy for Mary in the book of Luke. But because they really couldn't do it through Mary, they did it through her Uh, one of her relatives who was a man, but this is Mary's genealogy in the book of Luke. And in Matthew, we have the genealogy of Joseph. And both of these point to Jesus. Both of these point to Jesus. Mary being the physical mother of Jesus and Joseph being the legal father of Jesus. You say, well, so what? Well, here's what you find out through the genealogies. Here's what you find out through the genealogies. Is that Joseph is related to King David through Solomon. 
Solomon was the one who built the temple, had all the money and had all the wives, had all the wisdom, all those kind of things. You remember Solomon? And so Joseph, if you follow the genealogy in Matthew, it walks your way down to Joseph all the way from Solomon. This is good because it is through Solomon that Jesus could lay legal, legal claim to the throne. If he had not been out of Solomon, there would have been no possibility of saying, I could legally be the throne, uh, the, uh, on the throne of Israel. Mary, however, did not come out of the line of Solomon. And we'll see why that's important in a second. She came out of the line of Nathan, another one of David's sons. Extremely significant. Why would it be so significant that Mary also be out of King David? Because he was only legally connected to Solomon and David through, through uh, Joseph, because Joseph was not his physical father. But he is physically related to David through who? Through Mary. So he has physical claim to the throne, this eternal throne, through being physically born out of Mary. Now this, you say, well, that's really interesting, Pastor. Um, this is what, this is critically important to the people of Israel. It was critically important to Matthew. And, and you say, why is it important to us? Well, I want to draw your attention to two curses. Two curses. That if you look in this genealogy, you'll see that it's of critical importance. Let me show you verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, he's just gone through the genealogies. And then in verse 18, he culminates it this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged or betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the who? From the Holy Spirit. Why was that necessary? Well, let me give you two curses. The first curse was upon one of Solomon's descendants, and his name was King Jeconiah. J-E-C-O-N-I-A-H. In other places, it's just Coniah. It's the same person. You say, what does Jeconiah have to do with Joseph and Jesus? Well, Jeconiah was such a bad king, and he did so many bad things that God leveled a curse on him and said, none of your descendants will ever be on the throne. And you see Jeconiah in the lineage of Jesus through Joseph. So all of a sudden, you know Physically, it can't go through Jeconiah or Joseph, so we got to back up, and we need to go through Mary physically. And so to avoid the curse on Jeconiah, Mary had to have given physical birth to Jesus. But there's a second curse that is a much bigger problem than the curse on Jeconiah, and that is the curse on Adam. By the way, if you did your genealogy, guess who would be at the very beginning of it? Every single one of us comes from Adam. And what that means for you and me, church, is that every single one of us was born with a sin nature. 
we were born tainted with the fallen, sinful nature that began with our father, Adam. And that sin nature, biblically, we see, was passed through the father throughout the generations. And so once again, you see another reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. I'm not sure how to spell that. He had to be born of a virgin. You know, people will say, well, that, mir- that was just a miracle. They're just making a big deal. That sounds sort of mythical, and that, that's really not important. Folks, listen, it's critically important. Because if I would have been out of Joseph, if Jesus had been out of Joseph, he would have been born with that same corrupt, sinful nature. But what you see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, is the key to it all. The key to it all is you've got Mary, the physical heir to the throne. You've got Joseph, who has legal heir to the throne. But, but you can't do anything if you don't have Jesus being born of the Holy Spirit. What you see is the legal claim to the throne, the physical claim to the throne, and the spiritual, eternal, universal claim to the throne by virtue of the fact that Jesus was fully human, having come from Mary, and he was fully divine, having come from the Holy Spirit. This genealogy, this pedigree is absolutely critical to the promise of an eternal throne That is a universal blessing. So Matthew's making his case. Do we need better kings? Do we need help? Matthew's saying he's come. Jesus fits the bill. Look at his pedigree. But as exciting as that is, I'm blessed by who's in his family tree. (laughs) I love his family tree. Let's look at uh, who he used in his family tree. Look at verse two. Verse two. It starts with a guy by the name of Abraham. Not exactly a perfect person. He lied about his wife twice with Pharaoh. He had all sorts of issues. Abraham started this whole thing, and uh, he was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of a deceiver by the name of Jacob. They had Judah and his brothers tried to kill Joseph. These are not, these are just normal, average, wicked human beings. And Matthew, you know he just loved including these people because he's still stunned that Christ would use him. Stunned. And so he gets to these different parts of the genealogy and he writes it in. He says, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And you say, well, that sounds normal, except it was by his, his, his own family member, Tamar. It was an incestuous uh, prostitute type of relationship and she was Gentile. He plugged that into the genealogy and says, look who God can use. And he goes on and he says, in verse uh, 4, Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. You know anything about Rahab? A prostitute in the city of Jericho, one of the great, great, great grandmothers of the king. And Boaz the father of Obad by Ruth. She was a Moabitess. Moabites came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. 
and they used, the, and Ruth was a pagan, and she became a believer, and she was plugged into the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus came out of a Moabitess, out of a prostitute in Jericho, out of Tamar, this Gentile. And then look at verse 6. One of the key figures in his genealogy is, is David, and he says, and David was the father of Solomon, and doesn't even mention her name. He just mentions the evidence of, of, of her failure. He says, this, he, he was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know who this was? This was a lady by the name of Bathsheba who had uh, uh, succumbed to the advances of King David, was complicit in the murder of her husband Uriah. I've got back here a couple of genealogies on the Chauncey family. These are some of the Yoder side, and these are from the Chauncey sides. And I've got some interesting characters. Any of you got some interesting characters in your genealogy? How many of you are sitting by one of them right now? You just... We, we, we really, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee to folks that were born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we've got hill, hillbilly roots. It is in my DNA to be able to make moonshine. It is. I, it's somewhere in there. I've never tried it, but I know it's in my DNA. Right? And you know that's what your genealogy, you've got the same kind of genealogy. Jesus comes and he says, here's the genealogy. Here it is. And it shows that God can take anybody into his family. That anybody can be in the family of Jesus. Anybody, and any, if Tamar, if Ruth, and you know, they would have never put women into the genealogies. Much less Gentile women in the genealogies. And Matthew was the perfect one. He said, look, I got nothing to lose. I'm a public ante. I was saved by grace. I was a tax collector. What, are you not going to like me? I'm going to show you who this king can use. He can use me, Matthew said. And he can use them. And he can use that hillbilly moonshiner. He can use them. That's the kind of king Jesus is. My genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, my genealogy, your genealogy, you know, it, it proves to me, this proves to me two things about me. My genealogy proves to me, I am not the Messiah. Okay? None of that's in there. But more importantly, it proves I desperately, desperately need one. I desperately need Jesus. All of our righteous works put together accomplish nothing. I needed a Savior. The Chauncey family needs a Savior. You and your family, as good as you are, maybe you're landowners, <laughs> maybe you're UF graduates, you need Jesus. Matthew says, look at his pedigree, look at the people he can use. But then he finally says, I want to show you a proposal that only Jesus can make. Since he is the legitimate king, he's the only one that can make this proposal to you. All the presidents, all the kings, all the rulers, all the governments, we can put it all together. They cannot accomplish 
what this king can accomplish for you. In John chapter 14, he looks at his disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. No matter what you see on Fox News, no matter what you see going on, I want you to know the Christmas promise has been fulfilled. There's a new king in town. Trust me. Believe in God. Believe also in who? In me. And in my father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He says, I'm going to prepare a place. Who can start this thing over? Who can deal with the mess of my sin and the mess of this world? Who can handle this? Who can handle global warming? <laughs> I discovered this week, I never thought about it. I believe in global warming. But it's of a different kind. And it's much more tragic. And it's definitely more true. In 2 Peter, Peter says this. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept, he's keeping us until a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Well, listen to verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Who can do this? Only the one who sits on that eternal universal blessing throne. That's the only one who can do it. Matthew points to one person that can sit on that throne, and that is Jesus. There's a guy by the name of Nicodemus that came to Jesus that night in the dark. Why did he come in the evening? We, we speculate that it's because he was an important person. He probably really had a good genealogy. He had a good pedigree. He had a priestly pedigree. He had wealth. And he comes, and he doesn't want to jeopardize his standing, but he comes asking Jesus. I think he came looking and knowing the incredible inadequacy of his genealogy, the inadequacy of the Roman Empire, the Israelites, all that the world had to offer. Nicodemus comes to this unique person, Jesus. He says, what must I do? What is it all about? I find it interesting, having just talked about a genealogy, I, I find it interesting what Jesus' answer was. Look at your genealogy, Nicodemus. You have to be born, what? Again. The only hope is that you are born into a new family, a new line, a spiritual birth, and only Jesus can make that happen. 
He says, if you will believe in me, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, what, what do you mean? I'm going to go back into my mother Mary? I'm going to go backwards? He says, no, 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 no. You've got to start completely over. And I, by virtue of being the King of kings and Lord of lords, I can give you a new birth. And he offers that still today. You can be part of the family of God. How do you do that? I don't know, when you stand before a king and he offers you something, and what do you do? You, do you get on your knees? You ask? King Jesus says, I, I can give you new birth, eternal life. I read something this week about uh, the surrender of World War II, Japan's surrender, that really struck a chord with this moment in my message as General MacArthur was standing in front of the Japanese representative of the emperor, and it was coming to a close, the Japanese, the Japanese uh, ambassador reached out to shake the hand of General Douglas MacArthur. And MacArthur stood in this direction, he looked at him and would not lift his hand. He said, sir, your sword first. Your sword first see Jesus he wants to be your king he's he wants to be your friend he wants to give you new birth but what it requires of us is that moment where we surrender our sword and our sword is rebellion our sword is doing it our own way our sword is thinking we can earn our way to heaven our sword is just our resistance against surrender to the king he was born king for you. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and just a moment of quiet, moment thoughtfulness. I'm just going to ask, has there been that moment where you surrendered your sword? Where you recognize Jesus as your God and your King. You know, I, I can think of moments, the moment in my life when I was a young boy, age nine, and I surrendered my life. But I know as my life has gone along, there have been times where I've taken back up my resistance and I've had to surrender it again. But but I'm asking this morning, is there anyone here who has never surrendered their heart to King Jesus? I don't know what else to do. You're standing in front of the King who loves you and did all this to give you new life. Would you not surrender your life this morning? In a prayer, would you in your mind's eye and in your heart of hearts look at the King, King Jesus, and say, I surrender. Here's my heart. Here's my life. As you yield, he takes your sword and he gives you forgiveness and he gives you the gift of eternal life and it's yours forever. Would you be willing to do that this morning? Some of you have never done that. I ask you just to pray if you'd like. You just pray these words, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for being born on my behalf. 
Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I surrender to you. And I ask for the gift of new life, eternal life, and forgiveness.